Yo, 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 welcome to Crate 808. And today we continue our look at the greatest three album runs in hip hop history. And this one here is special. Yes, we are blessed to have a living rap legend on board today. It's the guy who gets more biz than Marquee as he sparks the mic like lightning. It's frightening when he's hyping because he's rowdy like Roddy Piper. He's hyper, the type of guy to let it fly like a sniper. So Radiant Dum Dum's Buster Scientifical approached the course and the force is centrifugal because this man flows with the greatest ease, never did care about their haters. Please, yes, he's not Ralph Mouth, Richie, or the Fonz. He's no joke. He schools that ass like St. John's. We have got an absolute microphone fiend in the hot seat today. Please welcome Master Ace on board the show for a second time. How are you doing, my man? Man, that was quite an intro. Did you rehearse that? I have. And I'm not ashamed to admit that. I've been cooking, rehearsing that. I've been making sure I don't slip. That's bars from several different songs. And you did it seamlessly like it was all part of one rhyme. I couldn't do that. Oh, wow. Mate, I'm not even a rapper. But I just wanted to say, the gems you've dropped inspire us all in little ways over these decades. And today, man, I'm so hyped for you to come on and do this because your album run, Master Ace Incorporated, Slaughterhouse, 1993, then Sitting on Chrome 95, and then Disposable Arts in 2001. We're going to go into them with you and pick your brain about these amazing records. But before we do, Master Ace, I've just got to ask you one thing that I ask everyone when they come on. What is the least hip-hop thing you've done in the last 24 hours, my man? The least hip-hop thing I've done in the last 24 hours. Like, if you had said a month, maybe I could have thought about it more, but the last 24 hours? Um, oh, last night for dinner, I made for my family ramen noodle soup. Ooh, nice. Like, from scratch, meaning, like, not like the, the you know, I'm talking about, like, chopping up all the vegetables sauteing the vegetables and, 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 you know, sesame oil, cooking the broth separately, adding the broth to the vegetables, combining those, adding the noodles last. So I, I became a ramen chef. <laughs> and a rhyming chef as well. Sorry, I had to put that there. A ramen rhyming chef. It's all there. But I was going to say, Master Ace Ramen, I'm absolutely here for it. If it ever kicks off, I'm absolutely here for that. I really enjoy that. I, I, what I enjoy more, though, is talking more about these albums. Because I know you've talked about these and with this amazing docs out there. Do go out, check out the docs on Disposable Arts and stuff like that. But for me, I just wanted to kick this off with, as the artist who made this run, out of all of these three albums, these three kind of eras of your career, is there one that means more to you than the others? Definitely. It's the Disposable Arts album. Hey, yo, Ace, don't tell me you're thinking about a return. I'm kind of concerned. When will you old cats ever learn? It's time to hang it up when you stand on your last leg. When you don't write on the reg and your future is past dead. I'ma tell you, cause none of these cats will. You can't still try to rely on your rap skill. You ain't got nothing behind you, and believe me, not a label out there gonna find you and wanna sign you. Write your rhymes in the shower, you wash up. That particular time period was a very dark time for me career-wise. I really felt that I had kind of reached the end of my career. I felt like there weren't fans out there that were really interested in what I was going to be doing going forward after, after sitting on Chrome. The album that I had just been working on for the three years prior to 2001 got shelved, never came out. It was just a really dark time. I, I reached a point where I was actually going around and record labels trying to get a job at a record label. I was at that point, like, I'm done. I'm not rapping anymore. And so for me to be inspired enough to make that album, and I will say the UK had a lot to do with 
that album being made because I it, it was the UK where I traveled in 2000. That tour inspired me to go back in the studio and do one more record, which became Disposable Arts. And that one album has extended my career for 20 plus years. If I didn't, if I don't, if I don't drop Disposable Arts, we're probably not even having this conversation today, and none of the other records that followed would have ever have happened. Wow, that is incredible. That's pretty seismic, man. Do you listen to Slaughterhouse or or sitting on Chrome or do you ever listen back to these? Individual songs, but not in their entirety. I generally don't listen to my albums in their entirety after I make them. Like maybe like the first week or so when I'm kind of like listening to make sure everything sounds right. But once it's like out commercially and it's, it's, it's in the stores and it's in, for fans to consume it, I really never go back. I can't think of a time that I've actually gone back and, and I might have gone back and listened to a couple of songs, but not like full albums, top to bottom, skits, everything in place. I, 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 don't, I don't do it because I've done it so much leading up to it. You got to remember, I've listened to it a hundred times before you guys ever hear it. I see. I see. I was wondering if artistically, if you're listening back to something, are you not, you don't want to get stuck in the loop of what you've already done before and be influenced going forwards and maybe you just want a fresh start. One thing that I've always loved about you is that you are one of the best aged rappers. And, you know, I know you love your biking, I know you're staying healthy, I know all that. But it's not just that, but just lyrically listening back to these three albums and what you dropped since all these years, I do think you're one of the better rhymers and artists who's aged the best. Like Long Hot Summer, Brooklyn Masala, that is like stuff I still play today. For you, what do you put like that down to? Like the fact that you can still make music today? Did these three albums like play into that? Absolutely. The reason why these records sound the way they sound and why I rap the way I rap on those records is because I felt like I still had something to prove. And I still feel that way. I still feel like I'm never on anybody's list. I, I've seen a million of these different lists, top 50, top 100 even rappers, like to not be mentioned in, you know, on, in these publications when they list the top 50 or top even 100 rappers. And I'm looking at the list. I'm like, I'm better than 50 of these people. Like, they're bugging out right now. Like, maybe I don't have the hit records with the catchy choruses and the, you know, the dance, the dance joints, the, you know, the, the those jingles. But I don't have those ringtone joints that that everybody knows and sings to. But just in terms of actual ability and skill, I, you know. So I I use that as fuel, like you know. And so every time I go in the studio to make a record and write, and I'm writing these verses, I'm writing them from a place of People don't think I'm good. They think I'm terrible. I'm, I'm going to make sure they know on this one I'm not playing around. And so that's what I try to do. I just try to make records and prove myself, continue to prove myself. That's the goal. Completely makes sense, especially listening to these. And I know you're not in the best state to like make some of these albums and you're going through a lot of stuff with industry and stuff like that. But lyrically, it's never not sharp. It's always on point where I'm like, even sitting on Chrome, uh, we'll go into the album later, but even that, there's moments where I'm like, oh my God, the rhyme in there, whatever, but it's always on point. Like E, cause I be Letting niggas know what time it is when it comes to me You can't find this here anywhere and I tear You a new asshole, it's beautiful, let's go Look at your reflection in my shine Fine but you know, you said there about like, you're not on these lists. The way I look at it is obviously these gatekeepers have kind of fallen. Yet yeah, there are still like now influencers stepped up, influencers here and there. So anybody could put a list together. But for you, I saw you do the Tiny Desk a few years ago, NPR's Tiny Desk. Listen, I was born 
Son of Yvonne, Brownsville kid that wanna be on. Hit the streets, run and be gone. Outside with a curfew. Got lessons on honesty, virtue, and the people that are hurt you. Drug addicts, ex-convicts, living in a world surrounded by these conflicts. So many, too many to mention. I mean, that must have felt good, like a modern, a younger audience maybe getting tapped into some of your stuff. How did that come about, man? The person who curates that show, she used to work at J-Core Records back in 2001. So she was actually one of the people involved in disposable arts as far as behind the scenes, working, working to get that album out and promote it. Um, I think she was doing promotions at the time or, or some kind of A&R, but J-Core folded, the, that distribution situation folded up or whatever. And so she had to go get another job, but we always stayed in touch. And uh, so when, it, when, the, when the opportunity presented itself, you know, she's like, would you want to, would you want to, you know, come up here and do, do a set? I'm like, absolutely. I love the concept. Um, I've done, I've done shows with bands before. And, you know, and so, it was a no-brainer for me. I'm, I'm glad she asked me to do it. Shout, shout out to Abby O'Neill. Big up, Abby. Absolutely. No, it's brilliant. Lovely set as well. In the lobby, sitting on tenant patrol. Because folks getting robbed on the regular. By chain-snatching dudes just in it for gold. Son of Yvonne had a fight up the street. He's a nice Yo, 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 just breaking up this episode to tell you all about the Crate 808 Patreon, a place where you can help support the show so we can make you more dope rap chat and to go out there and get some bonus episodes under your belt and also get involved with the live chats with the Crate 808 crew and guests. Go to crate808.com or go to patreon.com slash crate808. Sign up for as little as buying us lunch every month. You can get two bonus episodes, including hidden gem album reviews from the golden era of the 90s and also you get our series focusing on mf doom and jay dilla and also the wu-tang chronicles once a month we drop an album review of every single wu-tang member we're going to go through every solo album and then review it for you guys and right now it's ghostface go in there get them ghostface killer editions in your catalog so get involved help us grow this show and yes big yourselves up enjoy the rest of the episode boom going back to like the 90s and your stage of your career here where you're going into slaughterhouse you have rapped what was it you said uh, almost almost had the 90s by the throat i was just that close to getting money by the boat i almost had the 90s by the throat i was just that close to getting money by the boat load instead of hoping what i wrote flowed i could have said whoop there it is but it would have felt so wrong to do what have been your biggest obstacles, would you say, when trying to maintain that mindset when making a piece of art or making music? The biggest obstacle is the industry, because the industry tells you that if you're going to be considered a viable artist that is commercially acceptable, commercially successful, there's certain things that you just need to do creatively. This is not about how, how good you can rap. It's about how you look, how you dress, your presentation, the chorus who's on the song with you. It's all of these different factors. And so as an artist, especially in that time in the 90s, I'm trying to exist. I'm trying to stay relevant in this space that I'm in, but I'm getting all of these signals, all of these dog whistles that tell me, oh, well, if you don't do this, then you're not going to be allowed into the kingdom. And so it's tough because it puts you creatively, it puts you in a place where you're kind of torn. You don't know you want to be successful. You want to be, you know, you're looking at your peers, people that were on the same exact level as you when you started out. And now you're seeing them ascending and getting radio play and 
doing huge concerts and huge tours and and you're like well me and him are like the same like i'm just as good as him like you know and so it causes you to question if you're doing the right thing so for a lot of artists those industry norms and rules become an obstacle some just fall into line i don't discredit anybody who decides that that's what they want to do but it just didn't feel right for me it didn't feel right for me to go that route i had to sort of blaze my own path and so i decided to do things my way make the record that felt good and honest to me as a creative person and just let the chips fall where they may and that album disposable in particular it put me in a different place it woke up another part of my career that i didn't really know existed and all of a sudden i had all of these new young fans who really didn't know me before disposable arts they weren't familiar with the previous albums they went back afterward and got those albums and, and know those songs as well but yeah it was almost like a a reset it was almost like you're playing this game, you know, you're eight, seven years in the game, eight years in the game, and then you just press reset and you start from square one again. And that's what Disposable Arts was. That was the reset for me. So if we kick him back to the first album in this run, and we talked about Slaughterhouse, and people go check out the Patreon we got going on because we did a review on there. We have sites that you've been on before. I've talked to you about it before. But I do think, and I hope that we can help do this, is these fascinating documents of, of musical history. This is like hip-hop history. You, can't re you shouldn't really ignore this. And you put so much, I would say, thought and emotion into that record. Again, there's concepts laid in throughout this whole run that are just incredible. The concept MCs, goddamn, you've you got to be right up there on that list. I just wanted to ask you, really, between Take a Look Around in 90 end of the 80s kind of thing, and then coming up to Slaughterhouse in 93. What happened in between that for you, artistically, spiritually? Where were you at that time? That's a good question. There was a lot going on. I, I dealt with almost the same thing that I dealt with right before Disposable. My album got shelved. I had an album I was working on. It was going to be my second album for Cold Chilling. I was in the studio working on that album. I had about 12 songs done. I really wanted to leave the label. I didn't want to really be there anymore, but there was I, I didn't see an opportunity to go anywhere else. But what really pushed the whole thing forward was Warner Brothers, which was the distributor for Coachellin. They decided that they only wanted Coachellin to keep, I think it was like eight artists. Big Daddy Kane, Biz, Shantae, Shan, IU, G-Rap, a six. There might've been like one more, maybe like seven artists. And everybody else, they weren't interested in going forward with. And I was one of the people that Warner Brothers wasn't interested in going forward with. And so that put me in a certain mindset, you know, the feeling of not being wanted, rejection. The thing that really fueled me was my first single off, Take a Look Around, was Me and the Biz, which was a song that I kind of did just as a lighthearted record for the album, because all there was a lot of really serious topics on that album. And... It was Warner Brothers' decision to make that the single. I tried to fight. I'm a brand new artist. I didn't really have a lot of legs to stand on. For them, they wanted to try to capitalize on the fact that Biz was, Biz's name was associated with the song. So they're just trying to capitalize on whatever name Biz had. It had nothing to do with me. And so, you know, I was kind of forced to make that my first single, which never sat right with me. For them to then turn around and say, that I'm one of the people that they didn't want, they didn't want anymore. Like I could have put out other records and maybe we could have had more success if I had done the records that I wanted to put out. So I listened to y'all and now y'all reject me. So all of that was, was, was fueling me. So when I got signed to Delicious Vinyl and it was time to do this new record, 
my mindset was I'm going to make the hardest record I could possibly make, the hardest, darkest, because me and the biz, there was so much backlash that I got like from the neighborhood and from kind of like industry friends, like, oh, you were some puppet, you got a puppet, like you, they were looking at me like I wasn't a serious artist. They were looking at me like I was a novelty act, not a real artist. And uh, that stuff bothered me because I knew what I was and I knew that wasn't, that would have never been a single if it were up to me. Being viewed as a novelty act and people cracking jokes, you know, behind my back, all of that stuff fueled me. And I said, when I go in the studio by myself to do the record that I want to do, it's going to be super hard beats, super dusty, dark. It's going to be nothing like what Warner Brothers would have wanted. That's why Slaughterhouse sounds the way it sounds, because I was really rebelling against what I had dealt with at that major. Interesting. Because that's fascinating. You getting grief and he, like shit for the puppet and me and Biz. And I remember growing up a bit later than that in hip hop and Ego Trip having like that puppet around all the time. Right. It became cool. But to be honest with you, the reason that Ego Trip even had that puppet is because, because they found the puppet at my management's office. Because I, I wanted nothing to do with that puppet. I didn't even want to be around it. It was actually in a garbage pile about to get thrown out. And one of the guys from Ego Trip, I think it was Sasha, came up and saw the puppet going out for garbage. He's like, yo, what are y'all doing? I'm like, oh, we're throwing this out. Ace doesn't want it. We're throwing it out. He's like, oh, I'll take it. If y'all throwing it out, I'll take it. And that's how, that's how he ended up with the puppet. Because I completely rejected that whole idea, the concept, the puppet, all of it. I didn't want anything to do with any of it. Right. I did not know that. That's amazing. But so when you're going now into Slaughterhouse, like you said, you want to go harder, hard as possible. It's it's a collaborative thing as well, right? So it's mastering uh, Master Ace Incorporated. And what I find fascinating is you've done uh, your, that first album in 1990, uh, Take a Look Around, and then you're going into this. And for me, it feels like after hearing all these years is you became more of the director of that project. Like you're going, not just, you're not in the forefront as much as well. You're also going and directing the whole project. And what I find amazing is it's worked so well for streaming days now because there's no albums anymore. They're just songs to put on a playlist almost. But this is an album and you could pick out Jack Be Nimble and you could pick out Sedan and all these other tracks to just put in your playlist. I don't know if you guys had that in mind when you were like forming this, that they should stand on their own as well as work within this concept of, you know, being the hardest. Well, the idea was you make songs that can stand on their own and then try to tie those standalone songs together into a cohesive album through through the skits. And, and, and that, that's always been what I've tried to do. I never made a song to try to tell the story on the album or to try to tell the story that the skits are going to... The songs always come first, and then I try to creatively figure out how to tie the songs together with the story. That's why it sounds like that. But you're right. I was kind of the director of that album in turn because you got to remember the first album Marley was running running the show Marley he made all of the decisions about which verses to use or keep or which which verse I should do re-record like he was in charge so but I but I paid attention I asked a lot of questions during those sessions when I was working with Marley so I, I felt like I had learned enough to go out on my own and, and put together a record even though I had no experience doing it but I did have a lot of guys around me that were talented beat makers. And so we would literally all be in the studio, four or five guys in the studio sampling stuff. How'd it sound? Oh, that sounds kind of dope. Put this with this. I got these horns. One of the songs on that album, Mad Ones, right? One of my favorite joints on that album. Actually, I, I still love performing that song to this day. 
my memory always fails me when it comes to who produced what. I got co-production on majority of the songs in that album because Mad Ones in particular, I remember we had the main beat, the main groove, right? So I was gonna I wrote the rhyme to that main groove, but we needed something for the hook. And I remember going into my my records that I had there in my bag. One of my records I put I don't don't ask me what record it was because I don't remember. I put the record on the turntable. I literally put the needle down and that horn that you hear in the hook, that was the first thing that played. It played, I backed it up, I played it with the beat. I was like, Let's, this is it right here, boom. It was that fast. I remember that moment because I was like, man, that was easy and this sounds so dope. That always stayed with me because you would think that it would take a couple of hours to find this perfect thing. I literally, first record, drop the needle, that's it right there, pull that back, boom. Let's get, sample that, bang, done. That's right, y'all, the hands, I didn't make the initial beat, but my contribution to that song was those horns in the in the chorus. This album's got a lot of that though. It's got the jazziness. It's got the it's satirical. It has that kind of idea of what hardcore hip hop. When did the definition of what hardcore? When did that change for you? Do you remember that changing in hip hop in the nineties? Like what hardcore was kind of thing. Well, what was happening at that time in hip hop is a little bit connected to if you remember when Naughty by Nature came out and you know Tretch is walking around with the baseball bat with the spikes and he's he's got all these weapons and. He's dressed in a certain way. He's had his hair with the braids and the real, real big baggy clothes and the vest and no, sh- you know, no, no sleeves. That whole look, that was the East Coast kind of look. And then the West Coast, it was NWA. Everybody trying to emulate NWA. And it was rapping about guns and smoking blunts and drinking 40s and shooting people and all of this kind of stuff. So what was happening at that time in, in, in around ni- the early 90s, Record labels were running out trying to sign the next NWA, the next Naughty or or a group like a Naughty. They were looking for anybody who had that look, that sound, and had that lyrical content. And I'm sitting there like, everybody don't have to do that. That don't mean that that doesn't make that harder than this because they rapping about shooting and drinking. For us, it was always about what the beats sounded like. Are the beats hard or not? Like to me, Ultra Magnetic was hardcore because the drums the beats it was about what the song sounded like not about the the imaging and the, and the lyrical content but it became that and so it was frustrating for me because i knew i wasn't going to rap about that i was anti all of that i was going to be anti weapons and guns and 40s and blunts i didn't drink i didn't drink 40s i didn't smoke weed none of that so i felt like they were trying to tell me that i wasn't viable to be in hip-hop because i wasn't doing these things so my reaction was to just go against it all. That's why that record came out the way it did. And that's why the theme of the record was me, you know, basically railing against the idea that this is what hardcore is. Interesting. Because even interwoven, though, in all that ethos of like, you know, what's hardcore, what's not, you've got like real lessons about mor- mor- like morality and, you know, like actual like, holy shit, this actually happens. And yeah, so there's a lot of depth to it as well. When it first came out then, what was the reception like? Do you remember that instant reception to Slaughterhouse when it came out? What were people saying? It was lukewarm, and the reason it was lukewarm is because several months right before Slaughterhouse dropped, Dr. Dre dropped The Chronic. 
92. I was already done with my record. So it wasn't like I could hear the chronic and go, wait, let's go back in the studio and do a couple more joints. The chronic was sonically the most crystal clear, loud, hard EQ'd album that had ever come out, in my in my opinion. I was like, how does he make it sound like this? What, what am I not doing right? Because at that time I was really into the EQ part of it, the the bass, the bottom, making sure everything was super loud and super crisp. But when I heard that, I was like, oh, my stuff is nowhere near this loud and crisp. And the chronic was all over the radio in New York City. Like it was getting crazy airplay. He had all of these really, really clean, crystal clear, loud, hard sounding songs that worked great on black radio in New York City and around the country. And my record didn't sound like that at all. The Chronic sort of set the tone for what going forward, what would be the blueprint for what, you know, commercial hip hop needs to sound like in terms of sonically. Um, and I completely missed the boat on the sonically part of it. I was into the bottom, the bass and all of that. You know, I was more, I like dustier grooves. You know, I like the little snap, crackle and pop from the record and all that. So I was into that. Which is not that there was anything wrong with that because there's a market for that. But it's a much smaller market than what Dr. Dre got with The Chronic. And so I just realized listening to it that I would like play them side by side. I was like, man, my album cannot compete at all with how this record sounds. And every time I dropped, there was always something else that was like the counterbalance to what I was trying to do that would go further and be more popular. So that particular year, it was The Chronic and The Chronic just ran away with it. Ran away with all the, the awards and the whole nine yards. Became, you know, uh, really a cultural timepiece uh, from that time period. So that's what it was up against. And when you're going to go up against a record like that, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. So the reception was was lukewarm because everybody was playing chronic. As the years have gone past and there's been this reappreciation, I feel, just from hip-hop heads that I know of this album and that it has aged really well. Do you remember a time when you started thinking, actually, this album's quite special? Like, there are quite a few people loving this. I do. It was a small faction of people that loved that record, but I didn't know it until years later. The first time I met Eminem was backstage at a show at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, New York. And we met backstage. He told me that when he was younger, he was riding around in a beat up car with his with his friends, which was D12. He said, Slaughterhouse was all we played. We, we played that album nonstop. And over the years, I started to meet these people that are like in their 40s. When they meet me, they're like, yo, Slaughterhouse, man. That's that's how, that's, that's how I got hip to you with Slaughterhouse, you know, because I was in high school and that's, that album came out. And it was one of those records that resonated with people that were about 17, 18 years old during that time. But the kids that were 17, 18, they weren't really necessarily playing the commercial stuff. They were more trying to find the stuff that was the underground kind of best kept secret kind of stuff that nobody knows about. You know, kids, they want their own thing. Like, they don't want they don't want to listen to the hip-hop that their old elders are listening to. They want to listen to stuff that they like. So I was surprised to know that that album resonated with the teenagers of that time. The guys that were teenagers in 93, it resonated with them. And now they're in their 40s or whatever, close to 50. And they're telling me, like, yeah, that was their record. And it's cool because I didn't feel that at the time because most of those young people probably weren't you know, necessarily moving the needle as far as making the sales go up or anything like that. So, um, and they weren't probably weren't calling the radio station. The radio station was really catering to females 
the demographic for black radio is females. I believe it's 18 to 25. That's the demographic. I didn't have records that females cared about. So when you don't have records that appeal to females, you're not going to get radio play. You're just not. That was the formula at that time. You needed to have records that appealed to the females or you weren't going to get a real fair shot. Yeah, absolutely. So when we then talk about the some of the particular cuts off this album, it is a big piece of work as well, so there's a lot to dive into. But we do have like categories like, you know, most rewindable moments on an album or like what I like to call five mic moments, like a moment of perfection where you're like, that gets five mics every time. Jack B. Nimble is one of them songs for me. It's just one of the hardest songs I've ever heard. Anyway, generally, it's got that lo-fi sound, your charisma's going through on the mic. It's incredible. And again, shows this album has real scope. Like you are going into, like it's not just about the hip hop industry. You're also talking about your community and social consciousness and Jack being nimble and you're thrown right into the middle of this kind of, almost like a chase, do you know what I mean? When you're listening to it. What's the story behind that song? How did that come along? How does it feel now knowing that that's out there? I got to shout out my guy Unique who produced that joint. Little known fact about the sample of Jack B. Nimble. It's actually the same, the same sample hard to handle the symphony loop is from people don't know that so it's a one bar loop of a piece a tiny piece of that hard to handle song that the symphony is made off of he grabbed a one bar loop of that song you can find it it's very easy to find but it's literally a one bar loop let me tell you about a guy named jack just blaze when he was coming up that was one of the records that blew his mind. He was still trying to find his sound or whatever. Just Blaze mentioned that he loved that album because of these one-bar loop things that my guy Unique used to do. I guess it, it helped him figure out his sound. But that particular song, it was about a, a pretty, pretty well-known story in, in New York anyway. There's a guy named Larry Davis. The story goes, he was wanted by the New York City Police Department for... They made it sound like it was like a drug thing, but it actually was, he knew about corruption, a few corrupt police officers that were doing some dirt in the community. And so he had threatened to basically snitch on uh, the cops that were doing this corruption. They decided to uh, exercise a warrant, an arrest warrant to go put him under arrest, but they were going to, he, he felt, and he's probably felt correctly that if they arrested him, they were going to kill him in custody or kill him on the scene. So when they showed up, he figured I might as well shoot it out because they're going to kill me anyway. So he had a huge shootout with the New York Police Department and actually got away and lived to fight another day. They eventually apprehended him like, I don't know if it was a few days or weeks later, but he was on the run for a while. But he actually had a shootout with them and got away. And so that that kind of put egg on the, on the police department's face. The thing about it that and I'm surprised. Maybe there is a documentary. If there is one, I'm not familiar with it, but there should be. I don't know if any of those officers that he was going to snitch on, I don't know if they ever got exposed. I don't know if that whole story ever got told. In the newspapers, they just made it seem like he was the bad guy who shot at a bunch of cops. And then, you know, he got arrested and put in jail. He uh, eventually died in jail of very mysterious circumstances. So they killed him. That's the bottom line. They killed him. So the song was me trying to kind of reenact. Obviously, I wasn't there. I don't know what he what he went through. I just, in my own mind, kind of created a fictional version of what I think may have happened. And so it, it was about Larry Davis 
on the run from police because he had information that was going to get some of these police officers in trouble. Do I, I should do a Google search to find out if anybody ever did a documentary about him or that story. It could exist. I'm, I'm not sure, but very interesting story. And it was one, kind of like a folklore kind of story in Brooklyn in particular, because he's from Brooklyn. The whole thing happened, I think, in Brooklyn. And so in a, in a weird way, like the community was rooting for him. Like they loved the fact that cops didn't just kill him. Like he shot it out with them and got away and was on the run. And people were kind of like cheering for him because they, they know how dirty the cops were moving at that time. But so that's what the song, that was the basis of the song. I I, I didn't know all the details of, of it, but I, I wrote the song based on the few details that I did know about his story. It's fascinating, man. That is fascinating. So Style Wars, that's another one. That Style Wars is just, again, such an amazing hidden gem. People go check it out. But also the remix on the 12-inch, that album cover to the 12-inch, which is very different to the album cover of the album itself. You know what I mean? Tell me about that. Well, I took the title. I snatched the title directly from the graffiti documentary. Had a huge impact on me. So I I just wanted to use that title. They call themselves writers because that's what they do. They write their names, among other things, everywhere. Names they've been given or have chosen for themselves. Most of all, they write in and on subway trains, which carry their names from one end of the city to the other. It's called bombing. Star Wars was just me just just going in, just talking my talk, talking my junk. You know, I say a bunch of different things on this. There's no real rhyme or reason to what I'm rapping about, but it's just basically I'm better than you and you can't do what I do. And I use this term, imaginary adversary. I need to make a song called Imaginary Adversary because as rappers, we will create an imaginary adversary and that's who we write about. A lot of times people think you're rapping about, oh, you're rapping about such and such. You're talking about this person. No, it's just an imaginary adversary that I'm talking about, that I'm going against. And so Style Wars was definitely one of those type of joints. Um, it was just a braggadocia joint super noisy you know I, I love the noisy loop because and I, I love the remix as well um but the i love that noisy loop you know at that time noisy loops were pretty popular you had cypress hill with the cypress had probably some of the noisiest records public enemy was known for their really noisy records so i just wanted to do a joint that's that was super noisy like that was just in, and I, you know that guitar that which was which was if i'm not mistaken bb king And the album cover, that like obviously the album cover to Slaughterhouse, I think we talked about that in the last interview we did, but also that different album cover, the alternate, the variant that you had, where you were, it's like in a meat factory almost. Yeah, the 12-inch cover was for Slaughterhouse. That cover, the photos for that cover were shot at the Slaughterhouse video shoot. If you've seen the Slaughterhouse video shoot, you got, so that's unique, unique. The, the guy who produced, he's one of the guys in the in the Jerry Curl wig. He's one of the, he's one of the rap, he's one, he's, I don't know if he's MC Negro or the ignorant MC, he's one of those two guys. But that's unique. That's the same producer that produced these re- these last two records we talked about, Jack B. Nimble with Star Wars. And so he plays that role of that spoof character with the Raiders hat and the Jerry Curl wig. But the day that we shot that video for Slaughterhouse, we took those photos so that we used one of the photos from the video shoot because they had the 
the butcher's uh, cloaks on with the blood all over him and all of that. Talk about unique. We can't move into the other album yet until we talk about Saturday Night Live and the Saturday Night Live remix as well, which is incredible. First off, I have heard a rumor that the scratches on that are primo, but uncredited. Is that true? Yeah, for me, it does the scratches. We shout him out at the beginning. You hear DJ Premier. So that was just us shouting him out. But he did the scratches. I've been friends with Premier for, has to be 30 years now. We were very close during that time period because the studio where I did the Slaughterhouse album, a studio in Brooklyn called Firehouse Studios, it was Guru who brought me to that studio. I wasn't with Marley anymore. I had to figure out where I was going to work. And Guru was like, yo, I'll bring you to a studio where we work out of. We'll work out over there. And Guru brought me there. I met the owner. His name is Yoram. I started working out of that studio. I did that whole album. The whole album I did was at the Firehouse Studio. So that's how Premiere was in my general area because we were around each other. They're working on the Step in the Arena joints. We used to hang out heavy, man. And so that's why Premiere did the scratches. Like, you know, it wasn't even like a big deal. It wasn't like, yo, we got Premiere. Like, it wasn't that because... That was just my man who who was a DJ who could scratch. That's what it was. Like, yo, do these scratches for me. Like, would you, you know? And and so it wasn't like now when you look back, it's like, wow, that's crazy. You have Premier doing scratches on the joint. And he didn't even do a beat. But at the time, it's just your friend, it's your it's your it's your boy helping you out. I I'll do the scratches for you. You know, it was literally like that. But that's why I love old school, 90s, especially hip hop. It's so almost innocent. It is the Wild West. I know 80s has laid a massive foundation, but the way they hit the charts and you just thought, yeah, people are just in the, each other's videos. You've got Cube and Cypress Hill and Q-Tip in the same video. I always loved that kind of, yeah, real family. There was a kind of, a, I know there was beef and stuff like that, but there was an overarching feeling of like, hip hop is a bit of a family. But before we go into sitting on Chrome then, is there any other tracks? I've got, I mean, J Tr Crazy Drunken Style, the way that is so off kilter, such a weird produced track, Late Model Sedan, Walk Through the Valley, all these songs. Is there any that stick out to you or you want to talk about before we jump into Chrome? I love Late Model Sedan. <laughs> The style that I rapped in on Late Model Sedan, I was channeling Ice Cube. I don't rap like that on any other song. But when I heard that beat, immediately I heard Ice Cube's voice on it. It sounded like some Ice Cube would have rapped on. So I decided to rap in a style similar to what I heard him do. It's a few records that he wrapped in that almost that exact cadence and so yeah i just i just literally channeled his his flow to that beat because it, it fit it made sense and so yeah i just wanted to say that about that song because it was kind of important and you know what the song is about as well the the fact that guys that you actually knew were driving around robbing you and others the thing at the end of the song that, that repeats, I ought to be safe in a black neighborhood. Like that was super important to me because I grew up in the projects and a lot of the guys that were doing the crime and robbing people were the people that I actually knew and played football with when I was younger, like in the neighborhood, like now they're running around. So it's kind of crazy to think that, wow, this guy who I used to play sports with, now that we're 
20, if I was to come around with some jewelry on, he would literally pull out a gun and try to rob me for my jewelry. Like, something's not right. Something's weird and wrong about that. It's one of my favorite records on that album, and it probably slipped past a lot of people, but that, that was an important record for me. I'm so glad you called that one out because I think as Hidden Gem songs go, if you do know and you follow hip-hop through the decades and how massive it's got and you've got artists that when I hear Sedan, I was thinking in this album, you've got these really cartoonish gangsterisms of like what was selling at the time, like we talked about The Chronic and stuff like that. So you have that sat satire to it. And then you've also got something like this, which is really grounded in real life anxiety and consequences and i can't stop thinking of kendrick lamar and good kid mad city and he has songs on there which are very similar like you know just anxiety of having to be in this neighborhood that you grew up in and yeah and I, that's a different world to me so just to hear these reports from the street that aren't in my world but grow my knowledge i'm so glad you called that one out man absolutely but people go check out sort house as i always say anyway but if we do go on now then so now we're going to 95 sitting on chrome 94 i do remember hearing your voice on i chill on the skit uh, for Gangstar, which was always nice to hear that and crooklyn came out 94 too and crooklyn came out 94 so you were very much on the radar i would say at that point 95 Sitting on Chrome comes out then. Tell us a bit about the context of that album before it come out and your journey maybe towards making that album. The important event that happened that led up to the Sitting on Chrome album was I did a remix for Jeep Ass Nigga and I called it Born to Roll. We put it on the B side of Slaughterhouse and lo and behold, that particular remix called Born to Roll turns into this huge radio record that nobody was expecting to the point where they actually had to re-release it as its own single because people were going to the store looking for Born to Roll and the record shop was like, we don't have that. And they didn't know that it was the B-side to, to Slaughterhouse. So they were looking for Mass Day's Born to Roll. They're like, we don't have Born to Roll, but we have Slaughterhouse. Well, I don't want that. I want Born to Roll. So the record was getting whatever the maximum airplay you can get on, radio, on major radio stations, it was getting that airplay in a lot of markets. Um, in particular, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, Las Vegas, uh, Houston, Dallas. It was the most radio play that I'd ever gotten in my entire career up to that point. And so we had to go out and shoot a video for it, even though it was a B-side. And we had already done the video for Cheap Ass Nigga, but now we're like basically doing a new video for a song that I already had recorded. We did a brand new video for it. The video winds up being on, there's a there's a show out in, out in the States, used to be called Video Jukebox. I don't know if you guys have that out there. You know, pe people can order it. So it was on that. It got retired on that. Like it was, it was, um, it was retired on Jukebox. It was on uh, a couple of the late night video shows. It was number one. It got retired on. It became this huge thing. And so with the success of that song, unexpected success of that song, I started doing all these shows. Now the label was like, hey man, we think you got something here with this car culture thing. Like, like people are really, really connecting with you because of this record. We need to really, on the next record, we need, first of all, we need to get in the studio and start working on the next record. And we need some more songs like this, like some more songs that speak to that car culture. And I said, okay, that wasn't what my initial instinct would be to do because that's not what I, I i've never been the artist type of artist that wants to chase 
the success of something. If it's successful, great. But I'm I'm not wired to like go, oh, that was successful. Let's do more of that. I'm I'm always gonna be like, okay, I'm glad y'all like that. How about this? But the label asked me specifically, could I give them a call culture record? And I was like, yeah, I I think I can pull that off. It's a challenge. Let me go in and try to create a car culture record. So I went in the studio and I started working on songs that would be follow-ups to the success of Born to Roll. And the result was Sitting on Chrome, INC Ride. Those were those were the two main singles that came out off of that album, Sitting on Chrome and INC Ride, which were both about cruising and cars and that whole idea. That's fascinating because automatically there's a conflict set up there, right? Like they're not selling in East, but they are selling in West and South. And now like you've said before on the other interview we have, this is your compromise record. And I just wanted to ask you there about how are you dealing with that conflict and what have you learned really? Like to create a project that is still sincere, reflective, it has substance, yet you know it has to fit. Like you said, it's a bit of a challenge, but how did you adopt to that? What did you learn from it? I learned to not listen to record labels and just make make the records that feel good and honest to you. I did try to put together a record that felt good to me within the constraints that they gave me, you know. And so what I was kind of trying to do was create this new sound where it was kind of like East meets West. And so the East, this whole East meets, I, I was calling it Brooklyn bass music, which is not even a thing. I just, this is something I came up with. I'm gonna call it Brooklyn bass music. Bass music was hot at that time in the South. So I call it Brooklyn bass. So it's a combination of Brooklyn and down South and West Coast. And so we went in the studio to try to put together beats that could really work either place. So what I started doing was I was coming up with these, you know, I would have these loops, these dope loops, hard loops, but then I would come in and, and basically bring in a keyboard player or, or play the keyboard myself and try to add strings and chords on top of this hard beat and it was it was definitely influenced by the chronic because i saw what the chronic was doing and i was like maybe you know so my my goal was to try to make this album a little bit more crystal clear a little bit more loud and more sonically pleasing to the ear so that rape so we get some radio play because that's what the label said they wanted so i was really trying to chase this idea that you know if we can make it really clean and crisp and nice you know, maybe we can turn this into something big. And, and, and you know, I had, I had watched my label, Delicious Vinyl. They had gone multi-platinum with Tone Loke. They had gone multi-platinum with Young MC. So they did have a pedigree. They knew what, from what I could see, they knew what to do to push a record to platinum. So let me give them what they're asking for and see if they can pull it off for me. But there was just a lot of things that went wrong from a distribution standpoint, from an administrative standpoint. A lot of mistakes were made that led to that album not selling what it should have sold. The first mistake was the fact that it was the B-side to Slaughterhouse, and they didn't anticipate that song being what it turned into. I knew that the song could work. They didn't see it. So now the record is getting crazy radio play, but people can't find it in the store because they don't know that it's on the B-side. So now they're scrambling. It takes them three months, four months to repress it as a standalone single. By the time it hits the stores, four months later, radio play has started to dwindle because that record was getting played for like three, four months straight. So by the time it hit the stores, the radio play was starting to decrease. It wasn't it wasn't as intense as it was. Had, had we had that single 
in stores when the radio play was happening, I'll probably have a platinum single right now. Definitely a gold single, but probably a platinum single. Those are the sorts of mistakes that lead to not getting what you expected out of this. What I thought was we had a deal, you know, I'm going to do my part. You guys are going to do your part. They didn't hold up the end of the bargain. For you then, this album, when you look at it now though, I feel, I mean, just on a personal level, I think it's brilliant. It's very different to Slaughterhouse. But again, it shows your, if not reinvention, but just growth maybe. Again, another concept. How are you landing on this concept for sitting on Chrome? Because you could have easily just done West Coast Bangers and done that. But no, you're tying it in again to like a journey. How did you land on that? Well, the goal was to try to mesh East and West, the sounds. And you got it's, it's very important to note that this was the time period where there was a real East and West conflict going on. There was, there was a lot of East versus West conflict happening. And so I thought if I could pull it off, I thought that what I could do was try to show that we were all one, that we were, even though we were different, that we were all part of the same community. And so I decided to write this story of my cousin who was from LA visiting me in New York and us while having differences, we're still related and we're still family and just kind of show some of the funny differences between me from being from New York and being from LA and kind of like make fun of that, those differences. And so, you know, cousin had the West, the over the top West coast accent and that whole bit, you know, the idea was to bring those two worlds together. And that's what I was trying to do with the music as well is bring those two worlds together in terms of the sound hard New York sounding drums blended together with really pretty sounding chords and keyboards and strings that was more signature West Coast sound. Bring those two worlds together. So it is the same crew from Slaughterhouse, again, flexing a different production kind of muscle. For you though, as well as the beats, lyrically, for you as a rhymer who rhymes the way you rhyme, but you're quite flexible, do you remember thinking, hmm, West Coast audience, Southern audience, I might need to actually change my actual lyrical songwriting? I've dumbed it down a lot because I'm looking at the chronic, because that's what I just kept looking at. I'm looking at the chronic, and I'm looking at the simplicity of these rhymes. One, two, three, and to the four, Snoop, Dirty Dog, and Dr. Dre is at the dough. And I'm like, Damn, you know, he just he just rhyming, he just flowing, and everybody can sing along because it's easy. So maybe I don't need to do all of this lyrical miracle stuff and just like keep it simple. So I tried to really keep it super simple, dumb it down, put a bunch of things in the rhymes that were easy to follow and sing along with, and remember like some little memorable little parts and stuff like that. Ain't nobody but the INC, like that kind of stuff to make it memorable. I was literally catering to the commercial hip hop audience trying to strip it down to its bare bones so that they could get it, understand it. You know, if you listen to the rhymes on Slaughterhouse compared to Sitting on Chrome, there's no comparison. Like, it's, it's, it's a clear, it's clearly different. I dumbed everything down. Like I said, this was a deal. I had a deal with my label. I'm going to do these things and you guys are going to do your part. And I did everything that I needed to do on my end and it, it still didn't work out. If it's any consolation now looking at it, which it probably isn't as much, but it does sound amazing. West Coast slowed it down and you showed that's another string to your bow. You can absolutely nail that. But if we're looking at songs like INC Ride, Freestyle, Freestyle, there's one. Unbelievable cut. This ain't off the top of the head, but it's still a freestyle. For those that know the real meaning. Uh, check it out. 
mentals on a prone. Correct this microphone, leave me alone. I'm in my own world, watch your girl. I can juice like Jerry Curl, mixed styles like Swirl. I remember you saying, this is for the people who know what a freestyle is. It's not off top of the dome. For you at that time, freestyle, pre-written, off the top of the dome. Tell me where you were at with that and that song itself and how that came about. Well, that was the shift in hip-hop semantics where people started calling anything off the head. They were calling it freestyle. And so, but there was a confusion because those were that was like a younger generation of people that were saying that and they didn't understand that. We always use that term freestyle, but it didn't, it didn't necessarily mean, it could mean off the head, but it didn't necessarily mean that. It just meant a rhyme that wasn't about anything in particular. It was just a rhyme I wrote about how dope I was. One of my rhymes, my braggy, my braggadocia rhymes. It's not a story. It's not a concept. It's just a braggadocia rhyme. I'm better than you, basically. And so, you know, we came up understanding what that meant. All of a sudden, there was a shift in the lingo. and so. People started referring to that term freestyle as to mean you're rapping off the top of your head. And if you were saying a written rhyme, that wasn't considered a freestyle. So I wanted to just clear up that confusion. It never worked because people kept using that term. And now to this day, that's what it means. But that wasn't the original meaning of freestyle. Fascinating to see the lineage, you know, of what we use in vocab now. It's just how we're growing, I suppose. If you're looking at For the Mind, Salad Dwellers are on there as well. That's just one of my favorite cuts. So rewindable. That was my first beat that I made, or one of my first beats that I made after I got my MPC 60 lessons from DJ Premier. Because Premier is the one who taught me how to use the MPC and the, the Akai 950. I bought the same equipment that Premier had. And I went to his house, he showed me how to use it. And that For The Mind beat was one of the first beats that I made after sitting down with Premier. That's crazy. And Big Up Salad Dwellers as well. That's another group that probably needs a bit more love and UG Phantasm and stuff like that. And uh, just put that in your car. Eastbound as well. There's another one that, you know, although it has that unreal beat and your neck is just getting this workout, like that is a gem. I'll still listen to Eastbound and what's going on. That's another very West Coast, but sounds still so fresh. Love that joint. Love that joint. From the East. From the East. From the East. From the East. That's one of those weird loops that I found. It's like a dirty loop i filtered it and i got the strings on there i'm trying to add all of these live elements the the strings the horns all those little pieces that's all from keyboards like me trying to combine the hard new york sound drums with the bright shiny musical sound in west coast but i wasn't see now if i was smarter what i would have done was i would have got a real keyboard player to come in and just do like because that's what dre was doing but i didn't know like i didn't I'd never been to one of his sessions. I didn't know. So he's smart. What he was doing was bringing in real musicians. And I'm like, okay, here's the foundation for what I have. Play a bunch of shit on top. And they would go in and just do their magic with their keyboard playing and whatever guitars, whatever they were doing. I didn't play instruments, but I was literally in there like one finger, like, eh, this sounds good. Eh, eh, okay, sample this. I could have really, really knocked those songs out of the park had I had had the, the, the understanding that for this, for, for what you're trying to do, you got to bring in real musicians who play these instruments. Then you win. So you mentioned what's going on, which I, which I, which I love. I always add my little bits, but shout out to, to my guy, Norman Glover, 
also known as Witch Doctor. He's actually the producer of that beat. Blues Brothers was him and Lord Digger, but he was really the person who made that beat. Um, they were a production team, but it was his beat. He did that beat. And so, um, rest in peace to Norm as well, Norm Glover. People don't know about Norm. Norm lived in the same building in the projects in Bed-Stuy. He lived in a Roosevelt, Roosevelt houses. He literally lived either on the same floor. I think they were on the same floor as Easy Moby. They were, and they were like childhood friends. I think he dated Easy Moby's sister at one point or something like that. Like they were close like that. So you got two guys, brilliant producers that lived in the same space. They grew up together. And he, he kind of f- falls through the cracks in terms of hip hop history, but equally as talented, you know, he actually got, he actually got credits on the uh, Biggie's first album as well. You'll, you see Blues Brothers on there. But but that was Norm. All those beats were Norm. Like I said, they formed the production team, him and Lord Digger. But the beats that got selected, like the What's Going On beat, were beats that Norm made, that Norm brought to the table. And so, you know, I just wanted to just take a moment to just shout him out, big him up, and say a rest in peace because he was a good brother, talented brother. Just, uh, you know, definitely a loss a loss to hip-hop. But he did his thing on a, on, on that joint. He did a couple of joints. The, the, the ones that any, anything you see on that on that sitting on Chrome album that says Blues Brothers, those were actually Norman Glover's beats. So before we move into Disposable then, which is quite a distance away in time, you know, is held aloft quite high in the West Coast, sitting on Chrome, the B-side, People in My Hood, which is a brilliant little concept track, Fat Cat Ride, all these songs. Now when you're touring, and I know you're touring still extensively in your, in, in your career, for you... Are there still songs off these two albums that we talked about already, Slaughterhouse, Sitting on Chrome, that you do pull out and throw in a set now and again? Oh, yeah. I don't really do a lot of records off Slaughterhouse. A couple of reasons. One reason is I don't have a lot of those TV tracks or instrumentals. I have a few. But the ones that I do have, I only pull those out for fans that really, really want to hear those records. Most fans don't know that album like that. There's always like a, two or three people in the audience, but when you're doing a live show, you got to kind of play to the room. And if there's like one guy who wants to hear something off Slaughterhouse, but there's 50 people that want to hear other stuff, like you kind of got to. But sometimes if I'm in the right mood and it's one guy, I might do the record for him just because, you know, I'm just in that in that right mood. I'll, I'll do it, you know, but a lot of those records from that from that album, from Slaughterhouse, I don't have instrumentals to. I have a few, but not, not that many. I do do um, Mad Ones, but I only pull Mad Ones out. I only pull it out if the energy in the room is right. If it's a super hype crowd where it's like they're already crazy, then I then I hit them with that because I know it's going to, you know, that's a song where you don't even have to know the song to go crazy when you hear it because it's just the way it drops. That's like the only song from Slaughterhouse that I consistently do. Uh, of course, I do Born to Roll, but Born to Roll was really more on the Sitting on Chrome album. But I do more songs off, off Sitting on Chrome. I do Born to Roll. I do INC Ride. That might be just the only two, really. Oh, Sitting on Chrome. Sitting on Chrome. I do Sitting on Chrome. What's the name of this song? Sitting on Chrome. What's the name of this song? What's the name of this song? Sitting on Chrome. Sitting on what? Sitting on Chrome. I'm going to say What an absolute bagger that is. 
if we're then going into the third album in this run, so fascinating insight already into those first two albums I wanted to talk about, but then you go in 2001, big six-year hiatus. What happened in that journey? I know you've talked about it before, but for people who maybe haven't heard, where were you artistically, spiritually? Uh, what was going on in that hiatus for you, which was a long time in hip-hop? Yeah, so Sino Chrome drops in 95. We have all of this success. We have all of this radio success. We're born to roll, and then we're INC Ride, and then sitting on Chrome. So all of these records got radio play, like like legit radio play, big big stations, rotation. And so you got to remember that this is still smack dab in the middle of the East Coast West Coast conflict. It actually had gotten even a little bit worse during ninety six ninety seven. It, it it actually ramped up even worse. More stuff started happening. The bad boy versus death row thing got to the point where people start getting killed and stuff like that. So there was this huge divide between the two coasts. You were on one side or you were on the other. It was literally like Crips Bloods. Pick a side. And so because of the success of Sitting on Chrome, Born to Roll, INC Ride, on the West Coast, New York didn't fuck with it at all. New York was like, that dude is down with them now. Like my city essentially turned his back on me as an artist. Like they viewed me as one of them. You're one of them now. Because a lot of people thought I moved there because I was signing Delicious Vinyl. I spent a lot of time out there. People thought I was living there. But they thought that I chose a side. They thought the side I chose was the West Coast. So I had a lot of backlash behind the success of those songs in my, in my hometown. And so I left Delicious Vinyl. I made several steps to try to reclaim my citizenship, if you will on the East Coast. The first step was to leave Delicious Vinyl, sign to Big Beat Records, which was on the East Coast. I signed to Big Beat Records. I started working on an album. I'm in the studio for two years, maybe. I want to say I signed with them, 96. I signed to, I signed to Big Beat. I'm working on the album, 96, 97. And then they just decided, did not put the record out. They decided to, to shelve it. It wasn't, at this point, Bad Boy had kind of taken over the airwaves in New York City. They had all of this R&B-laden hip-hop that was like the new sound of hip-hop, and everything was real shiny and glossy and very singy-songy and catchy and hooky. And the songs that I was doing for Big Beat weren't, were not that at all because I had already done the whole compromise thing. I wasn't doing that again. I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. I was creating this music, and ultimately they decided that what I was playing for them wasn't in line with what they thought was going to be commercially viable music. And so they dropped me. I dropped right around, let's see, 98, I guess. Because Lachey's album came out in 97. So I was kind of trying to be more behind the scenes, executive produce. Maybe, maybe it was a little before. Maybe I got dropped in 97. But I was working on her album. And um, well, I worked on her album. Her album came out. I said, hey, maybe... Maybe this is the next move for me. Maybe I should just become an executive producer, a producer, give me a job at a label and start working behind the scenes. So that's what I decided to do. I, I got a resume made up. I started I started going on job interviews at labels, trying to see if I could get a, get a gig. I started shopping beats. I started going around shopping beats, playing beats for different A&R dudes. And, you know, that wasn't really working. Nothing, nothing much was happening with that. And then uh, that's 98, 99. 90, what happened in 99 was I had heard about this new production crew that Jazzy Jeff had put together down in Philly, Touch of Jazz. 
they were working on some songs for Will Smith. So they had asked me to come down if I wanted to write some songs. I traveled down to um down to Philly, and I stayed at Jazzy Jeff's crib and worked on a couple of. So I, I wrote a couple of songs for that project that they were doing. I started dabbling again. You know what I mean? Like I still wasn't sure that I wanted to be an artist anymore, but they kind of talked me into making a couple of songs. I made a couple of little songs or whatever. So that felt cool. That felt all right. And that's ninety nine. Then two thousand opportunity presented itself for me to go out to to the UK to do a, to do a little tour. It's about thirteen shows, and so I was like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll travel out to the UK and do these shows. I come out to the UK and I do, you know, out of out of the thirteen, I want to say eleven of them were in the UK, and then two were in Germany. So I do those shows. To my surprise, UK was coming out to these shows. Man, the, the clubs were, were packed. People knew the music. They knew the songs. There was a sense of enthusiasm about me being there, and I I, I hadn't felt that. You know, I, I was all I felt was the backlash of being a, a West Coast sellout and all of that. That's all I knew. So for for me to um kind of get that feeling, that warm feeling of like, yo, there's still people out there that actually care about me as an artist. So maybe I will work on another record. Leading up to that, I worked um at this. There was a studio in Queens called 7888 and I met these guys I heard about these guys that were they were basically trading studio time in exchange for verses for for a project that they were working on so Duckdown had asked me to do a single Duckdown was trying to do their new thing so they were like yo we want to do a single I didn't have a studio so I heard about these guys so I was like oh maybe I'll go down there and get the free studio time in exchange for a verse so I went down there I did the song I did the song for me and Buckshot called Brooklyn Blocks that was that was the twelve inch that I gave to to Duck Down, but in exchange for that, I did a verse for uh, this compilation called Game Over. I did a song, I should say, not a verse, a song, but it's got compilation called Game Over, and that was our trade. After I did that song, the guys who were in charge of the label at that time was uh, Filthy Rich, DJ Rob, and producer Domingo, and the, the three of them were like, "Yo, man, you ever think about doing another record?" I was like, nah, I'm done. Nobody cares. I'm good. I'm done. You should think about it. You should think about it, man. You sound, you sound pretty sound. You still got something in. You still think you got still got another record in you. I was like, all right, nah. So then I go to UK and do this tour. When I come back from that tour, I'm like, you know what? There were some people out there that really was messing with me. So maybe I will. All right, let's do it. Let's do another record. I said, but I don't want no input. I need. I, I don't want nobody telling me nothing to do or make. I don't want to hear nothing. Just let me do the record. Have it come out. It come out. It's gonna be my last go around anyway. So if it's gonna fail, let me fail on my own. On my own. Let me. If it, if it goes left, I want to say it went left because of something I did. And they were like, "All right, that was the agreement. They were gonna shut up, and I was gonna make the record." So we made. We started making disposable art at the uh, at the top of two thousand one. I was in that studio probably three days to four days a week. There was constantly producers coming through there with beats, and it was a process. And I remember as I was working on it, Filthy Rich, who's still my partner to this day, I remember him saying something like, "Because he's just hearing individual songs I'm working on, but he's not. He doesn't. He doesn't know the vision that I have in my head for what this is going to be. I've already figured out the story I'm going to tell, the skits, all of this. But I none of this recorded. All I all I'm doing is recording songs. I remember him saying like, "Yo, man, it's a lot of." a lot of kind of slower joints like you, you need some up-tempo joints i was like yo i told you i don't want to hear anything 
Don't talk to me. Don't tell me nothing, man. Like, I don't want that influence. I don't want, I don't want anybody seeping anything into my head. So the next beat, I'm like, oh, I got to find something up-tempo. Because then I'll start thinking that way. And I don't want that. Just let me do the record. He's like, all right, all right, all right. So I start putting together the songs. When the songs are all done, for the most part, probably like 80% of the songs are done, then I start putting the skits together. And it was at that point that he started to see the vision and see it all coming together. When it, when it, was, when it was all said and done, they had, we found distribution through J-Core, who I mentioned earlier, where Abby was working. And um, it turned into the single most important album of my career. That is incredible. And I remember, just if you're ever looking for on-the-ground reports of the album landing, 2001-ish at university, all the hip-hop heads, all backpackers pretty much, and M was huge, DMX was huge, Jay-Z was huge, all this stuff. But Disposable Arts was like that little, ah, yeah, but if you're a head, you're going to love this. And it was this thing of, hold on, so it's Master Ace. I know I, I hadn't got into Slaughterhouse at this point, Again, I'm one of them people that have heard Disposable Arts and I went back. But I knew of you, of course, the Symphony, Juice Crew, all that. So I was like, okay, oh, Master Ace is back. Okay, cool. And they're like, no, no, no. It's a concept though. Like, listen to Alphabet Soup. Listen to, um, at that time, Hellbound with Eminem was on the Game Over compilation. And as Eminem stands, they were all throwing this. You check the compilation out, Master Ace is on there. Holy shit, okay. So he is coming back and this album i remember that time just thinking holy shit this guy he's not just you could have come back and just done what you're great at anyway which is machismo bit of social conscious stuff whatever whatever instead you're doing all that you're looking at rap's evolution what we were talking about that was on our minds as hip-hop heads like Hip-hop isn't the same. And we grew up in 92, 93, like, listen to hip-hop. Not in the 80s. The 80s, lads, they felt even more. But, like, exploitation, appropriation of this culture, which we didn't have the language for that, Ace. At that time, I was so young, I didn't have the vocabulary to explain myself and what appropriation was or exploitation was. But to hear an energized, and you sounded completely re-energized person just feeding me this kind of storyline with all these amazing like big up Paul Barman man them skits were just incredible like yeah so I just wanted to tell you from that point of view that album really vocalized a lot of stuff we were feeling Raucous was having a bit of a I don't know there was a big camp of Raucous fans you know at that time and in 2001 it was huge at that time the backpackers so yeah now I'm glad that the UK helped you just rediscover some of that form maybe but um, break down that title for me then because Disposable Arts it's a loaded title I remember hearing the title thinking that's quite loaded that's like you know that hip-hop's disposable for you did you ever feel that hip-hop was becoming disposable how did you land on that as a title for your album? Well it was it was becoming disposable um, I landed on that title because that was the era and I remember it very clearly I remember hearing a couple of artists that were at the time like New York artists who were like Big names. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I don't think DMX was one of them, but it was somebody from that Def Jam circle. I remember hearing an interview of an artist. I can't think of who it was. I don't think it was DMX, but I remember them saying, "Yeah, we went in the studio. We made 40 songs. We made 40 songs in like a month, and then we just picked the best 10 for the album." Because I was used to just going in. And every song was intentional. This is for the album. I'm not doing any throwaways. There's no throwaways, but. The other reason that I landed on that title is because I had just gone through witnessing with my situation with Big Beats, witnessing just how disposable my art was to them. 
it was, you know, something I had worked on for two years. They were very comfortable just shelving it. Just like, oh, we're not putting this out. Like, this is not something we're going to put out. It showed me just how little they cared about the art of it. It was just another commodity for them. And so that's how I felt. You know, everything down to the, you know, the cover, it all connected. The cover, I won't, I won't say the cover was a mistake, but the, the cover was not planned. The cover was not planned the way it came out. We had a photo shoot, took a bunch of pictures, me standing, sitting, different things. And I could tell during the photo shoot that this was not going well. I didn't care if the pictures were going to look good or not. What I cared about was what a picture is going to be an album cover, what are going to mean anything. And so on my way into the photo shoot, right next door to the, to the studio, there was an auto repair shop right next door. And when I walked in, I looked down and there was a car seat sitting in a pile of junk. I saw the car seat, but I didn't think anything of it. I, I, no, I, did, I thought something of it, but I didn't do anything at that moment. I went inside. We started taking these pictures. And he's like, pose like this, pose like that. And I'm just, I'm doing all these different poses, but I'm like, is this all we doing? Like, we're just taking stand up, like, with a backdrop. That's all we're doing. And I was like, yo, I'll be right back. And I ran out of the studio. I went next door. I didn't ask permission. I just picked up the car seat off the ground, off the pile of junk, brought it inside, and I sat it in front of the camera. He's like, what's this? I was like, I want to take a couple pictures of that. He's like, all right, sure. So I sat, I sat down on the car seat, and this is like, like I said, with a plain backdrop. I took a bunch of pictures with me sitting on the car seat. The car seat stood out to me because I realized that I was leaving behind that whole car culture slaughterhouse movement. So when I saw the seat sitting there, I was like, oh, that could be something because I'm moving on. Like, I'm not chasing the car culture thing anymore. I'm leaving it behind. So once things start, weren't going well, I had it in the back of my mind, I'm going to go get that car seat. We're going to have another, we're going to have a prop. I brought that in. We used that as a prop. Lo and behold, that ends up being the picture that we use, which I'm sure that photographer pats himself on the back because how brilliant he was to come up with this. But he had nothing to do with that picture at all. I mean, he took the picture, but like we, we literally put that together ourselves. The background of the cover, that was a separate picture. So I'm superimposed. Me on the, on the, on the car seat is superimposed on top of a, that streetscape. The photographer went out. He was supposed to go out and part of his, he got like 10 grand or something like that for this photo shoot. Something crazy. And he was supposed to go out and shoot a bunch of different backgrounds. And then we were supposed to try to superimpose my picture to a different background. So He's supposed to shoot the Brooklyn Bridge and some, you know, some key little places in Brooklyn. He comes back. He doesn't. He doesn't go to Brooklyn Bridge. He shoots. He shoots Queens Bridge instead. Wrong bridge. We can't use those. I'm not from Queens Bridge. We can't use those. 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 So, the photographer. I forget his name now. I'm sure I can look on the back of the record and see it. But he took the position that I've already been paid. I've taken the pictures that I said I was going to take. It's up to you guys to figure out the rest of it. Which, which was really pissed me off. The only thing that he did do was he's like, I have a bunch of other back backgrounds that I've shot in the past for other projects. If you guys want to go through those, feel free to go through those. So he gave us all of the background shots and it was up to us to sit there and superimpose my picture in the car seat with all of these backdrops. Once it landed on that backdrop with the street lamp and then it was nighttime and that glare, I was like, 
that's the cover. Like immediately when I saw it, I said, that's the cover. Sometimes these things do work out that way. But what does sound very planned out is the concept of the album as well as touching on, because I know even though you are playing characters. You got it, man. You're definitely my new roommate. And this is definitely your bed because it's the one that's not made. Mine is right over here. And I took the corresponding closet. Right, right. So what's your name, Money Grip? Um, my name is Ace. This can't be right. Cool, so Ace, where are you from? I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn? Holy cow! I have heard so much about Brooklyn. And and you've got like um, that policeman at the front and everything else. Are you ready? Hell yeah, I'm ready. My bags is packed. Let's get out of here. And you have like concept tracks within the big concept, but I remember hearing too long being like, you know, within this story. But then I remember hearing you say pacing like a caged lion with rage crying. Hey yo, it's been a long time, just like sweet revenge. Never thought that I'd be seen on these streets again. It's been five years at least, waiting for a piece. Bouncing off of these walls, awaiting my release. Pacing like a caged lion with rage crying. All them days trying to engage with the iron. Stuck in between a rock and a hard place. And that hit different, knowing how long you've been away kind of thing. So your heart was kind of in these bars. And... It was a really interesting way of portraying, because, you know, you could come out and just bang, I, you know, this is what happened, calling people out and whatever. But you masterfully kind of did it in this concept. It was amazing. But on MC Paul Barman, you've got commercial on here, the Institute of Disposable Arts, which is still hilarious. And not just comedy, like really cutting close to the bone comedy. After graduating from the Institute of Disposable Arts and receiving his degree, Ace went back to Brooklyn and made a better life for himself. He started his own label and artist management company a year later. Eventually, he moved out of the projects and bought a small, modest house in a quiet section of Brooklyn. A month after he went away, his ex-girlfriend Lisa became pregnant for the third time, this time by Abala from New Jersey. She still lives in the PJs with her three kids, and she occasionally does hair for extra cash. Her ex-man before Ace, Tyreek, the one who tried to have her carjacked, is currently serving a 25-to-life sentence in Virginia for murder. Next time you have a minute, pull out that Eric B. and Rakim album, that Big Daddy Kane, Public Enemy, EPMD, and MC Light. Take a listen to that Queen Latifah, Special Ed, and Gangstar. Break out that King T, Ice-T, Ghetto Boys, and N.W.A., and listen to where you've been. Preserve the music. Like the last rites, I could see myself doing that you know was this person who's not in the world of hip-hop apart from the community and having that what's he say now where about we've got to you know preserve the culture and you know 80s 90s and i was like holy shit is that me oh my god i hope i'm not that guy but you also know that there's this there is an element and people talk about it now about culture vultures and how prevalent it's been in the last few years in the hip-hop kind of thing but for you those skits how do they come about how did that even ethos of thinking about appropriation exploitation and and then how did barman fit into all of that how did that all come about I mean, sometimes when you're doing things, you have these ideas, but you never, you never know how they're going to be viewed or how they're going to, I, I really wasn't thinking about how anybody else was going to look, was going to take it or receive it. It was in my mind, it was my final album that I wanted people to know where my heart was at, where my mind was at, so that when it was all said and done, they would know how I felt about the journey how I felt about the culture. So 
I, I literally wasn't trying to teach anybody anything. It was me letting you know, this. these are my words, this, this is how I feel about this entire picture of our culture, of our industry. And I'm sharing it with you. I just figured out how I wanted to say those things through these different characters on the album, Paul Barman being, being one of them. And I met Paul in 2000. He was managed by uh, this guy, Matt Goyas, who he was like helping Lacoste to basically become more relevant in the street again. And so basically Lacoste was paying artists to wear their stuff down to uh, this clothing convention called, called Magic. It's a, it's a twice a year clothing convention in Las Vegas. So Lacoste paid for a bunch of us from New York as tastemakers to basically go down to the convention. They covered our hotel, our meals, and they gave us gear to basically just walk around the convention wearing their stuff, you know, like walking billboards. It was like the idea was to make Lacoste cool again. It's so interesting that I, I wear Lacoste all the time now. I never even thought about the connection. Like I should, my wife buys me Lacoste constantly. I, I should be getting this stuff for free. But anyway, that's how, that's how I met Paul. He was one of the artists that Lacoste brought down for, and they, I think they did like a party. They did like a Lacoste party where we performed. I, th- I feel like I rapped. I did, so I did something at the party, like some little quick little something. But I met Paul during that, during that trip, and he was mad cool, and he invited me. After that trip, he, he, was, he was performing at a, at a uh, place in New York, Manhattan, called Joe's Pub, pretty famous at the time. He was performing. They invited me out. I came out to his show at Joe's Pub, and you know we just got cool. And so when I started working on, he was a very quirky, different kind of guy. He stood out to me as somebody who who wasn't the norm, but he was still hip hop. And so I thought he would be the perfect kind of juxtaposition roommate for somebody with my personality. So I asked him to be on the, on the skit. He was sure I'll do it. And I, I remember him coming in, and um, he read the script or whatever. There was a couple of things he. He kind of questioned at first, like he, he, he didn't like the, um, the part about the, the grades and getting good grades. Something about, it was something about the teacher giving uh, easy A. When he said easy A, he's like, he's, he's like, I don't, I don't really believe in, you know, I, I don't think the grading system, he was trying to give me some little philosophical point of view about school. And I was just looking at him like, come on, Paul, knock it off. He's like, all right, all right. Some of it was off the dome for him, especially the, when, when the roommates meet. It was a lot of ad libbing. I had, I had the, I had the, I had the written lines, but he did like, "Holy cow!" He's like running up and down the room, like he literally was running back and forth in the in the booth. So all of that stuff was like kind of like him. He just did it on on his own, but he just he was like the perfect addition to those skits because, you know, when I and it was a harken back to me my college days because I the roommates that I had when I was in college were very opposite of me as well. I had a roommate that was like a completely a uh, just junky, dirty. I'm super neat. He's super junky. We had several run-ins about the room and he kept all his junk. Like if you walked in the room, it was like one side was super neat and it was like almost like a line in the room and then all the junk was on the other side of the room. And so I just wanted, I just wanted to, you know, reach back to that time period. Cause I remember having that roommate and dealing with that. So Paul was like the perfect, perfect vehicle to kind of get, get that across. But he delivered, man, he, he, he delivered, he was the perfect character for it. Like I could have got somebody more kind of right down the middle, like typical kind of character, but he was just the perfect 
personality for 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 that. And I'm still we we still cool to this day. We we text each other all the time. That's wicked. That's really good, man. So on that though, like you've got that, you've got the skits, you've got like I've talked about before, the substances album. You've also got, and I know it was a misunderstanding, but it is one of the most perfect disc records I've ever heard on Acknowledge. And I'm not sure how you want to talk about it or not, but because Hi Mighty, obviously we've heard afterwards it was a miscommunication stuff like that, but it really did make me think, Jesus Christ, no one should ever test my face because he would just chop off heads. Pay homage, respect. Must have been crazy. Acknowledge step up. On stage at CMJ, mention my name. I hear these cats, but I ain't listening. A little faint dissing, a little scratch, a little paint missing. But I still gleam and glisten, hot like a stream of pissing. I'm about to have your whole team wishing that you never got this shit started. You about to be dearly departed. But like, you've got Acknowledge, you've got Take a Walk, you've got Something's Wrong, which I gather Eminem was supposed to be on that as well. Block episode, Alphabet Soup, all these things. For you, which are the songs that say you meet a fan for the first time or what are the songs that people really want to talk about or request or or want to you know hear about from you take a walk is a fan favorite without a doubt if i was going to introduce somebody to disposable arts for the first time and you said you know what what three songs would you want them to listen to that would be one of the songs i would tell them to, to listen to uptown come on everybody come on Let's take a walk through the deepest part of the hood. I want to know who it was that said it was all good. He must have never been to the corner and spent the half an hour or longer where you could smell reality stronger, where they sell you grease in a box and hope that you die quicker. And if you're old enough to walk to the store, you can buy liquor. I probably would tell him to listen to Alphabet Soup just because of the, the type of wordplay that we're doing on that song. Let's sing and learn about the letters of the alphabet. Hey son, how you be? Hey yo, I'm chillin'. And I see you D to go out and make a killing, but we're E. F that nigga, he making G's on tour with H-Town, doing shows overseas. Yeah, I heard he DJ, but yo, stop hating, okay? And then maybe Unfriendly Game, but the football analogies. I'm about to take this beat and teach you about the agony of defeat and this football game in the street. And no, it ain't two hand touch, just rough tackle. When niggas ball on your block and they bust at you, the field's full of players and they all trying to score. The whole team. If I was gonna listen to one of my records from top to bottom, that would be the record because it'll take me back to that time period. Like immediately, I remember everything about when I was making those songs and I remember what the studio looked like and some of the intricate details of those records getting made. Like, like for example, on Don't Understand, Greg Nice, I paid Greg Nice to come in and do the chorus, and he knocked it out in, like, two takes. When you pump it in your BMs, you pump it like this. Pump it in your brain, pump it like this. When you pump it in your Cadillac, pump it like this. Way out in Brooklyn, pump it like this. To my people out in Queens, pump it like this. To my people in the boogie He got his money, he leaves, and then the engineer makes a mistake and erases over his shout outs at the end. And there's no getting him back. So I'd be if you listen to if you listen to that song at the end, you'll hear him talking at the very end. He's he's he just he comes in halfway through a sentence. He says, Mash by the mash to the ace, y'all. There was a whole speech that led up to that mash that got erased. Mash by the sound. Luckily, he didn't erase the hook. We had the hook at least. Those are kind of the, the little cool little memories about that 
you know, time period that I that I think about it. I remember I remember going to the first time I met Eminem. Well, uh, I think I mentioned already, but I met him at Nassau Coliseum. The reason that I went there to meet him is because I wanted to play him the Something's Wrong song to see if he would, you know, get on and get on that song for me. And so we met backstage, just me and him, talked talk for a little while. I played him the Hellbound song because he hadn't heard it. Yo. I fucking... I puke, eat it, and freak you Battle, I'm too weedy to speak to The only key that I see to defeat you Would be for me to remove these to Adidas and beat you And force feed you in both And on each feet is a cleat shoe I lift you off the feet so fast with a roundhouse You think I pulled the fucking ground out from underneath you I ain't no fucking GM a cannibal And when, as, soon as, he, as soon as he heard his verse He's like, oh, I, I remember this rhyme I remember this rhyme And he's listening to it, he's listening to it But he hadn't heard me on it or anything He didn't hear the hook, he heard nothing He didn't even hear that beat because the, the beat that he originally did that rhyme to was a totally different beat. So it, it was his first time hearing it. He's like, oh, this came out good. It came out good. He liked it. And then I played him Something's Wrong. Yeah, last night I had a nightmare that I was whacked. Nope, I'm sorry. Was that you said something dope? Fuck it. It don't matter because I know shit ain't really like that. Because if you said something dope, I know somebody else probably had to write that. You on the wrong song. And I'm on the right track. I said, it's dope. It's dope. All right. I gave him a copy. And he said, I, I'll get back to you. Maybe a week after, he hit me and he basically said, you know, his manager, his manager said that it's not a good time. He had, the manager said the, the excuse was that he was on too many records. Like he was, I think he was on uh, Jay Z's album, Renegade. Yeah, there was a few other records, bigger, bigger artist names that he were, that he was on, and they just didn't feel it was a good time for him to be on that. So whatever, I'm sure there was more to the conversation, but it didn't happen for whatever reason. But those are just some of the, you know, memories that I that I think about. I, I, I remember I remember getting the beat for Take a Walk from Gerard, Gerard C. Baker. He produced that. I remember going to his house. He lived in uh, he lived in Flatbush, Flatbush area. I remember going to his crib and, you know, I was in, in his bedroom. Like, like, it looked like his bedroom from when he was in high school. Like, it looked like it was still decorated like a high school bedroom. And we went through a few beats and um, I was like, give me this, this, and this. Like, three joints. And Take a Walk was one of them. And so, all right. So he gave me he gave me copies of three beats. I left his crib. I got in the car. I'm playing it in the car. I get to the corner. I, I call. I said, "Yo, I want this one. This the one. There's not even a, it's no question. This is the one I want." So just like little memories, like those are some of the things, details that I remember about making that making that album. Amazing. I remember those M reference on "Don't Understand" where it's like, "I don't make black music. I don't make white music." I don't do white music. I don't do black music. I make rap music for hip hop kids. Y'all know what it is when I get biz with this. That was like a tip of a hat, you know? Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that back then. Them little flourishes, we live for those. But you know, you said like Alphabet Soup. I've heard again, that was a shelved cut. And I know you said in Big Beat, that whole album was shelved. Any of that album get reworked or was Alphabet Soup maybe on that like, that thing you'd worked on? Or, or was it just completely just left to the ether and you just moved on? Alphabet Suit was definitely one of the ones that got reworked. Different beat, completely different beat. The original beat was produced by Socrates that would have been on that shelved album. That's interesting because you talked about Late Model Sedan on Slaughterhouse, right? And then we talk about People in My Hood, that as well, linked a little bit to that. And then I heard Block Episode. 
Woke up this morning hearing shots below my project window. The TV's on for playing all night on Nintendo. Jump out of bed trying to see what's up with all the noising. I see somebody else has caught a case of lead poison. This type of shit around my way is a regular recurrence. Because the same shit just happened to my nigga Terrence. A week later now, somebody else is laying dying. Surrounded by a crowd of people and his mama crying. The way he's laying there, it looks to me like... And it felt like this natural progression of you telling me the story of people in your surroundings, in your environment, and like the shifting perspectives. Like block episode for me is just incredible. What was the story behind that cut? Shout out to my guy D Prosper because he's the one who brought that beat to the table. It was produced by this guy named Louis Sabor. But D Prosper is the guy I knew from Rhode Island when I went to when I was went to college in Rhode Island. He was really interested in getting involved in the music industry and he started taking trips to, to New York to try to get to know people, and he, he did it. He got to know people. He actually not, ended up knowing more people than me because he, he was just that determined. I took him to a couple of industry parties. I remember him being at the parties. He was literally introducing himself to everybody at the party and asking them, and what do you do? Okay, I'm Prosper. blah, 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 blah. And so years later, after all of that, years later, he's like doing studio sessions with Talib Kweli and Most Def, and he's like in that circle. And I'm like, damn, how do you know these guys? And he's like, yo, I got to know everybody. He, he, he literally ended up knowing everybody. So when I told him I was working on this record, came to the studio with this, with this music, and um, I immediately picked that beat because I, I just loved it. I loved the way it felt. I had met Punching Words maybe in 2000, like a little bit before. I met them and uh, liked them. Didn't really know them, but I, I heard a couple of songs. Um, they had an EP that was coming out, and they were very different, but I liked the fact that they were different. One was kind of more thuggy and one a little more street and one was a little bit more intellectual. I like that. So I thought they would fit perfectly on this song if one of them could be the shooter and the other one could be, you know, the guy who got who got shot. And, and I, initially, initially Words was supposed to be the intended target of Punch on the song. Words didn't like the idea of being the intended target for his for his 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 group mate. He's like, yo, I'd rather it be like a more like a straight bullet type of thing. I was like, okay, no problem, do it. And they wrote their parts and loved that song. Absolutely. Uh, and, and there's a fair few on here that have, I suppose, become quite a few fan favorites from just my perspective, from people that I know. But I can't wrap up this album without talking about Hold You. One, two, oh, check oh. it. You should have known from way back I tried to amp you. Tried to speak on your skills when other niggas felt me. But you know that if you wasn't with me, they can't even hear you right. And if you tried to snatch me up, it'd probably turn into a fight. I've been through my phases with cats and chicks. I know you see me. Again, such an incredible concept track. But Jean Grey, absolute legend. What did she bring? Like when you were working with Jean and uh, when that track came about, how did you even work that concept out? How did you pan that out with her? She's a pretty smart writer. So I, I knew she would get it. I just told her like, yo, I'm rapping about this girl, but it's not actually a girl. It's actually hip hop. And I want you to just basically embody that. I want you to be that girl that's hip hop and rap from the perspective of being that, being hip hop, but being this, this girl. And she she got it, understood it, and and ran with it. And the funny thing is, the beat produced by Ayatollah, Ayatollah owed me a beat. I did a verse for him for something, a song or something. He owed me a he owed me a beat, so he gave me he gave me a CD had about ten or eight eight or ten beats on it. And he's like, pick one of these. And I'll be honest with you, when I went through them all, I was like, I don't think I like any of these. I hit him back, and he wasn't really getting back to me. And I was like, let me listen to him again. And then I listened to that one again, and I was like, I could probably work with this one. 
but it didn't it wasn't like that immediate like when i heard take a walk it wasn't immediate like this is the joint like it was like i don't know but once i wrote to it and laid my verse down then it started really to grow on me and now it's like one of my favorite joints to perform i, I love it now but at the time because you know he had done at that point he had done miss fat booty and he had done a couple of pretty dope joints and i was like i want one of those I, I was looking for him to, you know, recreate something that can't do that. You got to just, you got to make each thing be its own thing. You can't be looking for, can't say, yo, give me another Miss Fat Booty. That's already been done. It's already been done. I think I so loved the Miss Fat Booty beat that when I heard Hold You, I was like, this is not as good as that. But at the same time, I didn't realize how good it was until I, really started to write to it and lay my verse down then i was like oh this story, this joint is kind of dope but that, out of all the songs on that album that's the one song that i was shaky on at first now i realize i was bugging out i'm like you know but you know we have these moments sometimes you hear something and you're like eh. but you hear it you hear it later and you're like man i was wrong on that one for sure Man, that's amazing. Dad, thank you for that just insight. I did not know that. But yeah, people do go check it. Well, check out all these albums, I would say. But on Disposable Arts, you've got Dear Diary, uh, Goodbye Lisa, Every Other Day, and you've got stuff where you're venting, like uh, Enough, and kind of type People I Hate, kind of the type I hate, and Unfriendly Game, you know, this concept of sport in there as well. I just wanted to say, you know, when you hear it now, and I hear like uh, No Regrets, it does feel like a goodbye record. And I'm so glad it didn't become that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and it felt that. That energy was there, man. So we're, I just want to say thank you for not saying goodbye and then coming and the legacy of this three-album run, you tell me. But when I hear like um, Story of Me, like you did recently, well, relatively recently, I just want to say thank you for making a song like that because after all these years, like decades later, I'm like, Jesus, Master Ace is still hitting me. Everyone go listen to the story of me because that is just unbelievable, that uh, that song. Man, it took me 15 years to understand my worth. It was 1988 when Marley planned my birth. Had to get my feet up out of the sand and surf. Never thought that my rap lines would span the earth, but, but they, they did. did. Went to every corner of the globe. It's time to reveal if y'all really want to probe. I went from Brownsville kid, born in Kings County to Queenstown. Sitting in a sauna in a row. And since then, never took a day from the pen. Honest the hard work will pay off in the end, yeah. For as long as my body is strong, I'ma give it all I got, try to body a song. Thank you for that song. But also, on the legacy of these three albums, what do you think it is? For you personally, or for just what you've heard from fans, how would you wrap this kind of album run up? Slaughterhouse was my first sort of attempt, if you will, at doing a concept album. I knew I had it in me, but I didn't quite know what I was doing yet. So I did Slaughterhouse, and then I raised the bar a little bit more on sitting on chrome so it was a little bit so then i had more characters slaughterhouse didn't really have characters sitting on chrome had characters i had my cousin and the girlfriend and this and that but i still hadn't quite figured it out it wasn't until six years later when i did disposable i figured out the formula but it took slaughterhouse to sitting on chrome to get to disposable for me to figure out how to really pull it off and and from that point forward i was like i got it now now i know exactly what i'm doing all these albums are going to be like this now. Amazing. 
amazing. We're all here just reaping the rewards, man. So thank you so much for the music. Thank you for your time for sitting here, digging into these records with us. I have a hundred more questions, but I'm, I'm not going to go into them because we've already taken about a few hours of your time. And it would be remiss of me if I have a Juice Crew member on the show when we don't talk about Granddaddy Are You. Just wanted to say RIP. Rest in peace, man. Yeah. 100%. And the only way to keep history alive sometimes is to keep talking about it and keep, like, you know, reminding people about this stuff. So thank you, man. True legends. So before you leave, I have to ask you what I ask everyone before they go. Master Ace, what is the last great piece of music that you heard? It could be new, could be old, could be your own, could be someone else's, but just the last great piece of music where you were like, damn, that is great. There's a song by Common. The song is called Don't Forget Who You Are. When I tell you the moment that I heard that song, I, I heard it on somebody's TikTok. So it was only like a snippet, right? I heard a snippet and I was like, it'll tell you at the top what the name of the song is. So I immediately went, found the song. And when I tell you, I played the song 10 times in a row immediately. And then I called my wife. I said, I need you to hear this song. And I sat her down and her friend down and I played the song for them. It's an emotional song for me. So uh, my daughter just got accepted to a college and she's going to be going away in August to college for the being on her own for the first time. And I told her that's the song that I'm going to play for her before we leave her on that campus. And so there's not many songs that are made in this current day and time that get that emotional reaction. It's a beautiful song. And uh, I'm glad you asked me that question because I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it. But I play that song constantly. And every time I play it, I play it three times in a row because I need to hear it that many times in a row. I'm so happy that you can share this with us, but also that you have that, that music is affecting an artist like you and your family. And it just says a lot about this music you guys have given us, man, from Common to yourself to everyone else. I'm sure there are people out there who have felt that about your music as well, bro. So much love to your family. I hope your daughter goes and smashes it like her dad has gone and done. I'm sure she will. And um, yeah, man, just keep on smashing it, bro. Keep on pushing because it's inspirational. It really is. Uh, so thank you for opening up for us. And I really appreciate it, man. I do. New album with Marco Polo coming this year. Boom. Let's go. And you're touring. Check out my page. You can find the uh, tour dates. Wicked. Thank you so much, Ace. And uh, just keep smashing it. Doors are always open. If you ever want to come on, we can help support. Just hit us up, man. Absolutely. Absolutely, brother. Thank you. Thank you, bro. Peace and much love. This was a Crate 808 production co-produced by Intricate Management, all music supplied by Grindhouse Music. <laughs>